Happy Labor Day weekend. Good to see all of you. And welcome to Mountain View Church, where our love for God leads us to love our world. I want to thank those of you that remembered to pray for us because we had an all-day planning meeting last week, and it went well, and we're going to be sharing more of that with you as we move into the future. That's kind of thinking in the future. I want to move to the past a little bit. Of course, we do that usually on Sunday mornings anyway. Most of what we're talking about goes back to the past, right? But I want to talk about the past in my life and an experience that I had while I was waiting for God. I was waiting for God just like in our series, Wait, I was waiting to see what God was going to do in my life. Didn't know quite yet that I was going to be a pastor, but I was waiting for that and seeing what, how I was going to lead into that position, what God was going to do with what was going to happen with Ron Spear. And I had that summer, I was away, I was, the summer I'm thinking about, I was about 20 years of age, I was going into my junior year in college, and I was away for the summer on a Newport, in Newport Beach. I was living down in Newport Beach in Southern California on a summer project with an organization that was then called Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, now it's called Crew International. And while I was down there, uh, we, we were having a great time. We were getting trained for ministry. But each of us would be signed. We were assigned as small groups, actually. There were 50, 50 students living in like a beat-up old apartment building. Can you imagine that? It was a lot of fun. And we all had our own jobs to help support ourselves. So I was working at a boatyard. That's why they used to call me Barnacle Ron. Okay? And so I was Barnacle Ron working in the boatyard and living in this old dilapidated apartment. And then they took like groups of 10 and they would assign them to different churches where we would serve on Sundays. And we were assigned to this church that was extremely liberal. And our goal was to try to help these people in some way. But it was, it was really hard for me waiting out that summer. And the guy... The people were really nice, but the pastor of that church, he said things that were so annoying. I mean, he said things that were really demeaning at times, even about Jesus. And it got to really bothering me. And one weekend, one Sunday, he went over the top. I don't remember what the topic was. I remember the topic I remember the most was the time that he talked about why it was all right for patients in convalescent hospitals to cohabit with each other. Just really weird stuff like that. And then he would go off and say these things about Jesus that weren't true. So at the end of the service, everybody got in line, right? And they went and they paid their respects to the old guy and shook his hand and said, good job. So I got in line. And I was determined to give him a piece of my mind that I could ill afford to lose. And I remember being so angry that I think I was visibly shaking. And I was, it was running through my mind, what am I going to say to this guy? I'm sick and tired of this. I'm here every week, and somebody's got to set him straight, and I'm going to do it. And I was getting closer and closer, and I wasn't even paying attention. And all of a sudden, I noticed that my arm was moving, and there was a soft hand in mine. And I looked over, it was my friend Sherry, and she was pulling me. She goes, Ronnie, i got to talk to you. And I said, I don't want to talk to you. No, i got to talk to you. I thought she was going to pull my arm out of the socket. She had both hands, and she was pulling her whole arm body against my arm. So I said, okay, what is it? What's so important? So we went over, we sat down in one of those old, you know, cement planter boxes, you know, and we sat down there and I said, what do you need to talk to me about that's so important? Now, the background with Sherry, she's a couple years ahead of me in school and she'd become kind of a big sister. I was a little rough around the edges when I first committed my life to Christ. I was a fresh, my freshman year, the year before, and she was the only 
one of the few leaders that was actually living in the dormitory. So we would eat meals together, and there were other guys that got around me, and she was like a group of people that were kind of trying to help get this guy straightened out. And so she had become a big sister to me, and we'd become very good friends. And in fact, I was rooming that summer with the man whom she would marry. He was a football player from the University of Colorado. Um, he'd injured himself, so he wasn't playing anymore, but, uh, but she was going to marry him. So we were all like a big family. And Sherry, she says, I know you well, and I, I can tell what's up with you. She says, you're going to say or do something that you will regret for the rest of your life. And of course, I was in denial. But as we kept talking, finally I realized she was telling the truth. I don't know if I admitted it to her. I was a little bit too proud for that. But I, we made jokes, and, and we cooled it. And that was it. But I often wondered, what would I have said, and what would I have done? And how about today, if one of my buddies had taken their telephone and, and videoed it all, and then it would be with me, the rest of my life. Isn't that crazy? You know, we went and we saw Sherry and her, and her husband now, Andy, um, along with some other friends in Colorado well, a few years ago, and she works now with Campus Crusade. That's what they've been doing for years. And I told her, I, I told her a story. I said, remember when you did that for me, Sherry? I was, thank you so much for doing that. She didn't remember it at all. She had no recollection. So this may just be a dream or whatever that I had. So, but but I, I remember it, and I'm just, I remember what my heart was like at that time, and I know it wasn't in the right place. And so we need to be careful about that. By the way, just sort of, we decided to do something I decided to do, something a little bit more informal with you. You know, I was, when I was thinking about this illustration, I started thinking about those days that I spent that summer there. And uh, I showed the guys, so I, I actually have some pictures from that. You'd like to see that? Some pictures of Sherry and me. Why don't you flash that up there? There we are. That was a, that's Sherry and me dancing. And she was trying to get me to dance. I was posing. That was, um, that, that was a, a dance. It was, a, it was actually a, um, a 50s dance. You know, I used to do a mean Elvis imitation. Um, so that's, we had like a cigarettes rolled up in our, in our shirts and everything else. So being pretty silly. Um, and then the other picture was preparing for Oakdale. And that was a barn dance that we did. And that's me on the far right. That's, that's me there. And Sherry's the, on the left there. See the blonde? And right up above her is Andy, her husband. He was 6'5", but he bent over for the picture. He may not have been that tall, but, you know, with our hair, we were typically a little taller than we said we were. He doesn't have any hair anymore, neither do I, but that happens a lot of times to people that are deep thinkers. Um, <laughs> this falls out. <laughs> Anyway, I want to tell you another story now. We'll move on to something a little bit more important about... Um, no, no, they, somebody made a, a comment that wasn't really kind, so be careful. Um, I, I'm a sensitive person. Um, so, you know, moving back to the far past, David had a really similar experience that we're going to talk about today. We sort of set the stage for that, and it's... It all takes place in chapter 25, and hopefully you've read it on your own this past week. It's a long chapter, so we're not going to tell the whole story. We're going to tell the story, but we're not going to read the chapter. We're going to just read some of the highlights of the chapters as we go along. Are you ready to jump into this story? It's an interesting story. To back up the story, remember last week we talked about chapters 24 and 26. Chapters 24, 25, and 26 all kind of come together as one theme, and the theme is basically that it's better to wait for God than try to advance on your own. 
And that's the theme. And twice he has an experience with a guy named Saul. That's the guy he's having problems with. And twice he has opportunities to kill Saul, and twice he spares Saul's life. And so we told those stories together. But actually, this story takes place after the first time that he spares Saul's life in the cave. He spares his life in this cave, and Saul turns on him later and forces him to flee to another place in the desert. And just as this is about to happen, there's some horrible, sad news that takes place in David's life. And that is we're told at the beginning that Samuel has died. Samuel's kind of, in my, in my, I picture him almost in terms of the Lord of the Rings, kind of like a Gandalf-type character. And he is David's spiritual mentor. One of the more underrated figures in the Bible, uh, he is the man who purifies the priesthood, unifies the kingdom, and anoints both David and Saul as king. Incredible man. This book is named after him because he's the main figure that it begins the story with, and probably also one of those who collected the stories that we have today to hand down to us. David didn't spend a lot of time with Saul in these, er, with um, Samuel during this time because he was being chased by Saul, and it seems like Samuel, pretty elderly, was confined to his home. But he gets the news that Samuel's died, and that's sad. And so he goes down, he has to leave where he was in Gadai, where he had this beautiful home and this oasis, and he goes down deeper in the desert. Tough times. And he comes across a town called Carmel. That's how you pronounce it in the, in the Bible, like Carmel Corn. Um, Carmel. Um, they didn't have any golf courses there, but what they had in Carmel was they had a lot of, of land. And the person that had the most land in that area was a, a guy named Nabal. Nabal was a wealthy man. In those days, your wealth wasn't based on how much money you had in the bank. It was based on how much produce you had and how much livestock you had and how much land you had, and he had all of those things. The guy had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep. That was a lot in those days. But he wasn't a good man. In fact, he's sort of an alter ego to Saul. He's almost like Saul in a different body in a different situation. Um, Nabal's name in Hebrew means fool. It literally means a wicked fool. Who would name their kid Nabal? Now, it may have been his name or it may have been his nickname, but he wrote it, wore it proudly, like somebody might call himself Mad Dog or something like that. He may have been a rapper for all we know. Um, but Nabal was his name, and he was a bad dude. But he had all this property, and he was an Israelite. And the big problem that he had is that the Philistines, their arch enemies, would send different troops in, and they would forge the land. You know, they would come in, they'd steal things, they'd rip things up. And so he needed protection. And David had an army of 600 men. And so as one of Nabal's servants will later say in the chapter, David's men were like a fortress around them, and they protected them from the Philistine hoarders. And he had probably one of the most productive years he's ever had. Well, now it's at the end of summer, and it's time for them to shear the sheep. And so they have a big festival and make it a fun time, like we might do with a uh, cattle roundup or might do with a harvest festival. And everybody comes together, and they're having a festival. So David sends 10 of his men to Nabal, and they're very respectful. And they said, David, your son, because David's a younger man, speaking to an older man, would like to make a request. He's protected your, your um, people all this time. Could he have just a... a a gift from you. Could, you maybe, could we maybe have some food to feed our people? Because he has probably about a thousand people, something that could feed our people. 
And this is an opportunity. It could become sort of a, an agreement. We'll watch your people. We'll take care of them, protect them. If you'll provide some food for us, we'll take care of each other. And Nabal, whose name means fool, acts the fool. And he says, son of me, he's the son of Jesse. I've heard that a lot of servants are running away these days, breaking off with their masters, which is a slam on David. In other words, he's saying that David has betrayed Saul, when in fact Saul is trying to kill David for no good reason. And he probably said a lot more. And he basically says, my people worked for this. They'll take care of it. I'm not giving it to anybody. Which, according to the law of Moses even, you're supposed to give, you know, you're supposed to give at least food and water to people, aliens that are in need around you. But he says, I'm not giving you anything. You go take care of yourself. And David's men go back and tell David. Now David has had Saul do worse things to him, try to kill him. But, you know, David's tired, probably not sleeping real well out there and under the sun. David's tired of being rushed around and mistreated by people. David has his headaches trying to take care of everybody. Everybody's hungry. He's hungry. And this is sort of the pinprick that busts the balloon. It just explodes it. And David just, it's, an, it's just too much. And he turns around and he says, you 200 men stay here with the women and the children and the supplies. 400 guys, pull together right now, put your swords on, we're going to make a visit to Mr. Nabal. And they're ready to go. Now, meanwhile, back on the ranch, one of the servants has the four, he is wise enough to say he has the presence of mind to go and talk to Nabal's wife. And her name is Abigail. And Abigail means something like, the joy of my divine father. She's like the daughter that everybody always wanted. She is in total contrast to Nabal. Everything that he is, she's the opposite. She is described as a beautiful woman who is also intelligent or full of understanding. And so when she gets this information, she realizes that David is probably going to be very angry. And in this barbaric culture in which they live, he would be more than justified to come in and clean house, which means he could burn everything to the ground, take everything he wants, kill all the people he wants, including her and her husband. So she needs to think quickly and act quickly, and she does. She gets her servants together, and they, they prepare a meal fit for a king. They get it on donkeys, which was the beast of burden in those days, and heads out looking for David. She gets on a donkey on her own, and she follows along to see what's going to happen. And just as she is going down, David's coming down the ravine with his men. And he turns to his men and he says, I swear before God that I'm not going to leave one of those men standing by the time we're done today. I mean, he is heated. He comes around the corner and he sees this beautiful lady just randomly sitting on a donkey, just staring up at him. And, and he's like, who's this? And she looks at him and she thinks, this must be Captain David. She gets off her donkey and she falls on her face before him, as you would a king. Now, she has a very difficult task. She has to somehow convince him that he should not kill her husband and wipe out her land. And how is she going to cool him down? What's she going to do? And she's very wise. And the first thing she does is she acknowledges that she's at fault. 
She says, you know, I'm basically, I'm married to Nabal. We come as a package. We're a family. We've done the wrong thing. I apologize for that. We're at fault. She takes the blame. She gets his attention. But then she goes on to say something very interesting. She says, you have to understand his name is Nabal, and as his name is, so he acts. And by the way, I never knew your men even came. I was told by a servant later. And so David gets this message right away is, this lady is willing to accept the blame. She's loyal to her husband. She's willing to sacrifice everything for him and for her people. And yet, she really isn't at fault at all. And she's trying to fix the situation. So now she's got his attention. And she keeps talking to him about, her, uh, about him being her master. Whereas Nabal just said, David, he's somebody's servant. But she just keeps saying, master, master. She teach him with, treats him with respect. And she uses the name for God, Yahweh, his personal intimate covenant name, which in the Bible is usually spelled out in the Old Testament in the capital letters, L-O-R-D, Lord, but really should be translated Yahweh. And she begins to point his attention to God. And she, she gives an exquisite little talk here that is absolutely amazing, and we can't do it justice just talking about it. So we're going to read what, um, what Abigail has to say to him. Picking up in chapter five, 25, verse 26, she says, Now since Yahweh has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as Yahweh lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal, and that this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for Yahweh will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights Yahweh's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by Yahweh your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as, far from, the far as from the pocket of a sling. When Yahweh has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when Yahweh has brought my master success, remember your servant. Pretty powerful little speech she gives there. Um, what she's saying from the beginning is, I don't want you to be blamed for bloodshed. I don't want you to have killed innocent people and have that on your head one day. And I want you to keep your focus on God and what he wants for you. We brought a gift for your people. Don't do this. And she says some things that are actually prophetic. All that she possibly knew, she knew that David had been anointed and Saul had been anointed probably. She'd heard the rumors at least. And she knew that Saul was trying to kill David. And some people were in favor of David. Most people were probably still you know, kind of playing it safe with Saul because he was a man in power. But she says right away, I know you're going to be king. I know you're going to have a dynasty, which in fact will include Jesus. I know this is going to happen. And I want it to be strong. Saul is fighting his own battles. You need to fight the battles of the Lord. And then she says something very profound. She says, you're like a bundle in God's pocket, so to speak. 
like a wallet, we would say today. If a man has a wallet and it's very, he has a lot of money in it, where's he going to put it? He doesn't hang it around his neck and walk around, right? He hides it in his pocket. He says, you're valuable. She says, you're valuable to God. And he has you in his pocket. And he's taking care of you. But all of your enemies, you don't have to fight your enemies. You don't have to try to advance yourself by taking them out. Because God will take them out. He will put them like in a sling and swing it. Just like you threw the rocks at Goliath. He'll take the sling and throw your enemies away. Don't you do it. Because then you'll become king. And in the Hebrew language, you'll be like a drunkard who can't think straight. You can't make decisions because of the shame of the past. Keep your heart clean. And she says something else that's very interesting. She says, my gifts are for your men. I give my gifts to your men and your people. I give myself to you. Remember me. Remember me when you come into your power. Now, all that is not, at the end there, is not uncommon that you would say to a king, but as we continue the story, keep it in mind because it shows that she may have had some additional foresight. This message is part prayer. It's part prophecy, and it's part a plea for protection. It's very interesting that the Talmudic Jews that came even after Jesus, a lot of the things that they wrote, um, they said this about this. It, it, it's really interesting. They the Talmudic, they, they said, they counted Abigail, these are the Jewish rabbis of Talmudic times, counted Abigail among seven women who they believed had been graced by the Holy Spirit, the source of prophecy. So throughout history, she has been looked upon as a, as a great lady. So how does David respond? For David, it's like the clouds part and the sun shines. He is so excited. He Right then and there, he praises God for speaking to him through Abigail. He tells Abigail, he admits and confesses to her that he was going to do some horrible things. He had some horrible things on his heart. And he says, I feel, basically, I feel so bad. But I have not only listened to you, but in Hebrew, I have not only listened to you, but I will obey what you've said. He says, I now lift up your face, literally. I lift up your face. Stand up. Go home. All's well. Thank you. And David and his men and family go off to eat. And what happens to Abigail? Who does she have to go home and talk to? The fool. The wicked fool. She takes deep breath. She heads home. When she gets home, she can't talk to him because he's throwing a banquet and making him pretending he's the king, just like Saul. And he's drunk and he's merry. And so she waits till the next morning. And the next morning she talks to him and when she tells him what has happened, he becomes like stone. Now, some people think that he had a stroke and others that he had a heart attack and still others that he just got silent. He just couldn't talk because he was just so upset that this very small portion of his wealth had gone to this man who he made fun of and so forth and mocked. Three days later, God struck him and he died. And David actually rejoices because he rejoices in the principle, the lesson. He says, God, I, I, I almost killed this guy and almost killed all these innocent people. But now I see, I've learned the lesson that you take care of me. I don't have to replace people. You will. You'll take care of the bad people in my life. You'll take care of me. And, and it, that's what happens there. But then it takes a twist. And this ancient story that has kind of militaristic atmosphere about it suddenly becomes an ancient chick flick. <laughs> David decides... 
he thinks this gal's pretty cool. And so he sends his men. But this is a different world, right? He sends his men to town, and they come and they say, David wants you to be his wife. Come, get your stuff, and let's go. He didn't have a choice. David wants you to be his wife. But she goes, and she goes with a great attitude. In fact, she says, I don't feel like I'm worthy of this. She said, may I be the one who washes the feet of his maidservants? And we think of, you know, Matthew, Mark 10, you know, where Jesus says that, you know, we should be servants of all. You know, those are the greatest people are those that are servants of all. And once again, we just see her attitude. She was just an amazing person. Now there's, it ends on an awkward note. And here's, there's always these awkward notes, right? But here's the awkward note. David was married to a lady named Michael. And Michael was the daughter of King Saul. So David was part of the royal family. At the end of the chapter, it tells us that Saul, in a very wicked move, took David's wife and had her married to another person. This made the assumption that he was, for all good all purposes, dead. And also that he had no right to the crown. He was not part of the royal family anymore. So David doesn't have a wife, and he... They thought in those days you had to have a wife if you were a king. It was imperative because you had to continue the dynasty. And so he gets married to another woman named Ahinoam. And I think you could argue you never should have married her in the first place because she bears him Amnon, who becomes his oldest and worst son, and becomes a problem there. But now he takes Abigail as his wife. So essentially he's had two, three wives and he's married to two right now. So if you're against polygamy, and hopefully everybody else here is... Um, that was not a good move, right? And, and how do you square that with David being a man of God, a man after God's own heart? Does that bother you some? It, it bothers me. Um, but when you look at it, there's, there's some things to understand. First of all, there's theological lesson here. And it is that the problems that we have in this world are because of us, not God. God, from the fall with Adam and Eve, said, go ahead, do it your own way. See how it turns out. And so we did the polygamy thing, not him. And it's still a problem in the world today. If you read Genesis, God was never for polygamy. He's always for monogamy. He allows, in some cases, he permits polygamy that's already in existence or continuing to go on. But in every case, it's a neg it has negative consequences. And even by the time of David, it's not that common anymore. And it will die out, and of course, it's clearly not what the Bible teaches, and we don't have it today. But we need to understand that in David's case, if you were king, you know, you had a lot of wives, so you could have a lot of offspring so that you could continue the kingdom, and that's what everybody else did. It's kind of like our kids say, well, everybody else is doing it. It was part of the culture. As we talked about last week, don't do things just because the culture does them. But let's understand that sometimes there are things we do because the culture does, because we've gotten swallowed up in it and we're blinded to the culture. Does that ever happen? We don't always get it. We have six, let's put it this way, we have 66 books of the Bible available, the whole Bible available to us in multiple translations. David had five books, the first five books, and they weren't available to him. They didn't have copies like today. So he didn't have a lot of that available to him. We have the Holy Spirit working yesterday. He didn't have it. It was a barbaric time. And this was just what everybody did. 
So he did it. So let's, not, let's be careful not to throw stones. I think what will happen is 20 years or more from now, people are going to look back on us and they're going to see some things that we did and they're going to be shocked. And they're going to be things that we don't even see. I think of the issue of abortion, which is a hot topic. Probably there are people here that have had abortions and it's such a horrible, painful thing. But a lot of times people have abortions just because they think, well, that's what you do. You know, they don't realize that the Bible speaks against it. And then they go through it, and it's a very emotional, horrible experience. But then they find grace and hope because God forgives them. He's just that kind of God. He forgives everything. But still, when we look at that picture, I I think the greatest atrocity probably in maybe in, in human history, at least the greatest genocide effort at genocide the world has ever seen is the Holocaust. And you know, more children have been aborted than were killed, people killed in the Holocaust. Did you know that? More children have died in that way. And what are people going to say 20, 30 years from now, especially, Lord God willing, that that changes? And they go back and they say, can you believe how barbaric those people were in the, 19, in the early 2000s? They were like animals. And yet, we don't, we don't get it sometimes. See how that can happen? And so that's kind of David's situation. Here's the good news, though. David basically married a Hinoam, and David basically married Michael because he, he sort of had to in a way. He marries Abigail because he's attracted to her. It's a love story. And Abigail is, is his equal in almost every way. She's beautiful. She's intelligent. She's entrepreneurial. She's wise. She's a good counselor. She's a great friend. She's a helpmate. She's humble. She's everything he could ever want in a wife. It's interesting because this story, 20 years later, has another story that's almost just like it, but it's negative. And it's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Do you know what story I'm talking about? Bathsheba and Uriah, another husband and wife. But it results in adultery and murder and hardship. Here's the interesting thing. From the time that he meets Abigail... There are hiccups, but everything begins to have an upward trajectory in his life. When he meets Bathsheba, everything has a downward trajectory in his life. 20 years separate the two. Abigail and her son, Kiliab or Daniel, um, they're not really mentioned that much by the time of Bathsheba. And I kind of think, though I don't know for sure, I don't think she lived that long. People didn't live as long in those days. I think Abigail died. And after he lost Abigail, David was never quite the same. Can't prove it for sure, but all I can prove for sure is that Abigail sure had an impact on his life, it appears, in these early days. So it just shows you how important marriage is, uh, how important to marry the right people. Now, having said that, um, we want to make a couple applications today. First of all is fools rush in. Make sure that you're not a fool who rushes in. Maybe there's a fool in your life. Is there a navel in your life that you can think of? Maybe in the family, among friends, neighbors, maybe somebody you work with. And you want to give them a piece of your mind. You know, don't do that. Be careful how you do that. First thing to do is pray and wait. Pray, wait, think about it. The second thing to do is to meditate on Scripture that will help prepare you for it. And I, I can think of really no better Scripture for this than uh, what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. It's a good passage to think about, meditate, pray over. 
memorize. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Can you see how that happened in David's life with Saul and now with Nabal? You go after and you try to take people out, and usually you're the one who goes down. But if you love people and care for them, it will turn around. God will see it through. And I think that's true with everybody like Nabal's. If you think of the Nabal's in life, my experience has been is that the Nabal's will go down. It may take years. It may take decades. It may happen after your life. But, you know, we know people that were evil people in the past. And even now there are things that are surfacing to show how miserable their lives were and how horrible they were. It will come out. So God will deal with those people. And that's not up for us to deal with. The second thing is identify wise people. Who are the Abigails in your life? Whether it be a man or a woman, who are the people that you can trust in? Who are the people that you can go to for counsel? That I've shared with you before. I have a group of five guys that I um, share things with regularly around the world. And I also have friends in my life nearby. I always try to surround myself with people whom I can go to. Uh, Proverbs talks a lot about in several passages that a wise person is somebody who has a group of people around them that can give them advice and who can support them and who can care for them. Who are those people in your life? Go home and think about who are the people in your life that you can go to. Um, remember that God is always there. I mean, that's just, we say that all the time, but I just want to remind you that. Is that whole thing, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, how do you feel about Jesus being there? Do you feel good about him sitting with you through the movie you're watching, through the jokes you're telling, through the way you're behaving to your spouse or your kids? Because he's always there. And be aware of his presence and find comfort and joy in it and help him, you know, let him be the one who strengthens you. If you don't know Jesus, we encourage you to give your life to him. Come and talk to us if you have any questions. If you know him, make sure you introduce others to him. Invite them to come to church. Uh, bring them here. Tell them about him. This last area I want to concentrate on more because it really ties in today's message. And, and I'm calling it Take It Home. Take them home. Kenny Loggins uh, wrote a song a long time ago called Danny Song. You guys remember that? Even though I ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. Um, Mitt says that was actually his original Winnie the Pooh song, I'm so in love with you, honey. Um, dad joke. Um, and I'll blame it on Mitch. Um, but, but he has a line in there where he writes, if you find she helps your mind, better take her home. Boy, don't you live alone. Learn to, to own what lovers own. Now, I'm not advocating premarital Relation, you know, sexual relationships, it almost sounds like they're it's kind of funny. We heard him in concert, and in another part in that song, he sings about um, the, the baby is conceived in love, and he changes that to conceived in lust. And he says, I've changed the words on that because we weren't in love, and we aren't together anymore, and we didn't know what we were doing. We were just young kids. So there is a, a lesson there, I guess, to be learned. But, but the point is still... Um, there is something about that. If you, if you guys meet a little gal who's like Abigail, and she's beautiful, and she loves the Lord, and she's wise, better take her home. Get married to that girl. 
grab onto her because you're not going to find many like her. And that's, that's what this, you know, I think that's what this passage is telling us today. You know, you find that girl. Um, my friend Sherry married my new roommate, Andy, and a couple months later, I went back to the illustrious San Jose State University, and when I was back at school, I met my future wife, Carrie. And uh, that was just a few months later. And initially, we were friends, but I remember the first thing, the, the thing that was interesting with that whole experience is that both of us were at a point in our life where we were saying privately in our diaries or journals and to friends, I'm not interested in dating. I just want to serve God right now. And then we run across each other, both working together and serving in ministry. And somebody had told me, this gal, you can't believe it, this new gal, she's coming, she's a freshman, she really, really loves God. And she's really passionate about him. She's, she's mature beyond her years as a Christian, and she's telling me all these things. And that was the thing that first attracted me. I thought, i got to meet this girl. And then when I met her... It was like, when I fall in love. You know, I mean, I, I was smitten. She wasn't. It took a long time to convince this girl. Um, I, worked, I worked hard. That's actually where I lost my hair. I, it was hard work. But, but we dated, you know, for, you know about all, through high, all, all through college until she graduated. Um, but I found that at first, even before we dated, we would talk. And I, could, I just felt free to talk to her about things. She was just so real and unpretentious. She was well, not afraid to make suggestions and talk to me. And we'd work through things together. And I thought, man, this gal, we just work together. There's chemistry here. And she loves God. She loves him. And she loves me. She's going to die for him. I, I'm, we're, we're willing to die for Jesus. Let's do it together, you know? Let's, let's, let's live for Christ. Let's have some fun living for him. And, and it became a relationship that, you know, we've been married now for 34 years. And I, so my advice to you that I've learned through life, and I've seen this as I've talked to other people, the best way for those of you that aren't married to find a spouse is not to seek one. Seek the Lord with all your heart, and he'll give you all the desires of your heart. Go after God. Get involved in serving him in ministry. Get involved in, in church and ministry and ministering to people and caring for people. And God will bring other people of the opposite gender who are doing the same thing. And next thing you know, you'll get married. Because you'll meet people that are equally passionate about Christ. And you'll meet people that are good people that have mutual interest. And that's the best way to meet, meet somebody. I mean, it doesn't always happen that way, but that's an ideal. So I just, for those of you that haven't, that's a suggestion for you. Now, the other thing, though, that the, the, the one question that this leaves us with that's a little bit disturbing is, why did Abigail marry Nabal in the first place? Have you ever thought about that? I've got an answer. It's called arranged marriages. She probably didn't have a choice. But what bothers me is even today, I see Abigail's marrying Nabal's. I run into a lot of problems. I would say over my years in ministry, I have had multiple Abigail's sit in my office in tears talking about how they're married to a Nabal. And it goes the other way too. But we're, you know, since we're talking about Abigail, we'll go on that, that way. But it's both men and women go both ways. But you know what the first problem I've discovered is? They were not walking with Jesus when they got married. 
They were not walking with Jesus in their marriage. It was a low time in their spiritual life, and they married this person, usually an unbeliever who had a lot of money and who was wowing them, and they got married and lived to regret it. So my, my first thing to say is make sure that you're walking with Jesus when you make a decision of that much importance. But the second thing to say is when you're married, you're married. And it may not have been the right decision at the time, but God is sovereign and he's in control of everything. It didn't catch him by surprise. And he can use that, those fiery trials to shape you into a godly woman or a godly man if it's the other way around. Now, I know people talk about abuse and I think we're fixated on it. Most of the time, we, let's, let's, we all abuse each other. We all yell at each other. My wife has yelled at me. I may have once at her. <laughs> you know, and, and we have those moments, right? That we have problems with each other. That's not abuse. But abuse does take place. If it's physical abuse to you or your kids, call the police right away. Don't mess with it. Get out of the house. Do not allow that to happen. That's completely against the teachings of Scripture. Not just in marriage, but in relationships, period. We're not to let people beat us up. Um, and, and if somebody's abusing you verbally, even to the point where, I, and I, I tell you, I know stories where guys will stand over the woman while she's in embryonic position and yell profanities at her. That doesn't, that doesn't cut it. There's a famous story of uh, E.B. Hill, the old African-American pastor, great big powerful guy about six feet four. He said what they did back in Texas once when a guy was doing this to his wife, they got all the elders together, they took the guy out and they made sure he didn't do any damage anymore. They took care of him. It doesn't always work that way, and that's not what God's always calling us to do. It's kind of a funny story. I mean, they just said, this, you're going to beat up your wife? We're going to beat up you, dude, and we better never hear about this again. Um, wow. But, but there is some seriousness to this, right? You should not hurt other people. And if somebody's abusing you in that way, let us understand that you are made in God's image, and God does not want you to be treated that way. And, and we're talking extreme. If they're on you all the time, making fun of you, saying horrible things in front of the kids, in front of your parents and everything, and it's just going on and on, they're just beating you down, beating you down, and it's really bad, uh, it can go either way. We've got problems here. You don't, you don't do that. You don't treat people like that. And here's the bigger thing is, guess who it's going to hurt the most? Them. Because they're going to have to answer to God for how they're treating you. So if you don't stand up to them, you're hurting them as much as you're hurting yourself. So that's where you set up boundaries. What does God do with boundaries? From Adam and Eve, he basically says, you separate. We're not talking divorce here. We're talking, maybe it's time to separate and get some counselors. That's what Matthew 18 is all about. You know, we always talk about church discipline and we talk about the end. We're not talking about the, the beginning is all we're talking about here. We're saying, get some wise counselors around you and try to work it out. And if it gets really bad, maybe you need to separate and you need to get some people around you and you need to attack this thing like a cancer and everybody works together to bring resolution and reconciliation. And when people do that, I've seen that happen, it works. Um, unless one partner says, no, I'm out, then there's nothing you can do about it. You know, if they're going to leave, they're going to leave. But you can do everything you can to work it out 
So I encourage you to, to do that and to encourage others to do the same. If you're married, though, unless it's an extreme situation, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 15 through 16, says that our goal is to stay in that marriage with the unbeliever unless they leave us so that they might come to know the Lord. And I'll tell you what, one of the main examples I've seen through the years of people coming to know Christ is that another, one of the two spouses come to know Christ first, and then they lead the other one into a relationship with the Lord. And so if you're married to an unbeliever, there's a pretty good chance they could come to know the Lord. So make that your prayer and your effort as best as you can. You know, we've talked about how bad it is to take revenge. Sometimes revenge can be fun if it's, uh, if it's lighthearted, right? But mean-spirited revenge should never take place. Make sure that you're never part of that and make sure that you have a posse of people around you to keep you going on the right path. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word and thank you for the examples of even crazy people like Nabal and wonderful people like Abigail and David who, you know, they made their mistakes. And I thank you for being honest with them, with us, so that we can see that people greater than us made some pretty big mistakes and pray that um, we learn from their mistakes and grow as people in our marriages and in our relationships with people and in the decisions that we make. Thank you for these examples today. Pray that people will take them seriously here today, Lord, and, and grow deeper in the relationship with you and with their spouse um, and be guided by you in how they live their lives. In your name we pray, amen.